Welcome to the Learning Can't Wait podcast, a Full Mind production. At Full Mind, our vision is to ensure every child has access to an exceptional education. Each episode, we will be joined by pathfinders within and around the education space who are bringing about transformational change on behalf of deserving students. I am your host, Haley Spearbauer. Welcome back, everybody, to the Learning Can't Wait podcast. I am so excited for today's panel. Uh, It is a fun story of how this panel came to be, which I'll tell in just a moment. But today's panel is an advocacy episode, advocacy from three corners of the education space, starting with Mohan Sivalogunathan, the CEO of Our Turn. Hi, Mohan. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. So glad to have you. Uh, We also have Tashir Cosby, the Senior Director of Organizing and Partnership for the National Parents Union. Welcome, Tashir. Hi, Haley. I should say welcome back. Welcome Welcome back. back. (laughs) Which is part of our story. I'll get to that in a second. That's how we got to be here today. Um, And last but certainly not least, we have Evan Stone, the co-founder and co-CEO of Educators for Excellence. Welcome, Evan. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Thank you for being here yourselves, because I know y'all are very, very busy people doing important work. And I know that doing a podcast on a panel like this uh, can have a short-term or a long-term or both effects on the work that you do and the work of our listeners. So starting us off, we are here today as this panel of advocacy experts, because I have had one of these guests before. Tashir Cosby has been on the podcast before. Um, And I asked for recommendations of folks to join. And during that recommendation period, Tashir recommended Mohan. And I was separately meeting with Evan Stone about coming on the podcast. Evan and I crossed paths in the early days of our education careers. And it became very crystal clear to me that the three folks who I had no idea other than Mohan and Tashir knew each other would be a fantastic panel of experts talking about advocacy through different lenses. So I want to start us off and get us a little deeper into those lenses. I'll start with you, Mohan. First question I ask our guests is, how did you become, how did you come to be the professional and personal version of yourself? Oh, well, thanks for that question, Haley. And again, it's always an honor to share space with Evan and Tafshir, who are two leaders who I admire deeply. I'd say that my personal professional journey is one where for a long time, I thought I knew exactly who I was. And yet I was very much in this process of learning. It was an odyssey at the same time. And there were many highs and lows on that. Uh, I'm the son of immigrants uh, from Sri Lanka who came to the country poor, but just had a dream to be able to make it, to be able to provide stability for myself and for my sisters. Now, in many ways, I think that immigrant experience means you work hard you just show up and hopefully the rest will take care of itself. And I think in many ways, I subscribed to that type of idea, you know, when I was in middle school, high school, college, even when I started my career, but then over and over again, I realized, wait a second, there's something that isn't quite true about this. I feel like I keep being isolated. I feel like in so many ways, there's, there's something that's wrong with me in this journey. I keep winding up in these situations where I'm butting heads with people in power, whether it's a boss or it's a, a teacher or other folks who I might work with. And, you know, I think through force of will, in many ways, I was still able to find my way through some successes in my career, but it wasn't until really, I want to say maybe six years ago, where I was in a role for about five years and I've been performing pretty well. Uh, We launched some pretty exciting initiatives in the human services space, and it was time for me to transition into my new role and and this, this next step in my career and out of the organization. 
Uh, and I remember talking to another senior leader in the organization as, you know, I was kind of in like my final week and he's somewhat of Nigerian descent. Uh, he's an immigrant. And, you know, he said, yeah, Mohan, you know, we're really going to miss you. I said, yeah, you know, I, yeah, I've been here five years. I get it. Like we've built, we've created a lot together. He said, no, no, you don't get it. Like we're losing our person of color on the leadership team. And I just kind of, like, I paused and took that in. And I realized that for so much of my life, I was almost hiding parts of my identity. You know, I was trying to show up and, and trying to be an advocate, but so much of it wasn't intentional. You know, so much of it, I was pushed to just work hard and to just assimilate without really leaning into who I am, what I represent, and then the obligation that comes with that. Uh, because in that type of role, I was literally the man of color on, on the leadership team. Uh, and it was an organization of a thousand plus people and over 75% of them were people of color. Many of them came from the communities that we were actually trying to serve through human services work. And so that was a big pivot point for me when it comes to my personal and professional journey of recognizing the obligation that I do have as a son of immigrants, um, as a man of color, as, as someone who needs to be an ally for the next person that might step through the door. And that's something that I hold and I cherish in my role at Our Return, recognizing that I do work with young people of color. I work with folks from underserved communities, and I have this role to pave the way in the, the playing field so that the next person who comes through, they can lean more into their identity. They can lean more into their power. They don't have to feel like they have to trap certain aspects of their identity the way that I felt for the majority of my life. So that that is essentially the journey that has brought me to you know, who I am and, and where I am today. Well, Mohan, I appreciate your vulnerability in sharing that story. I think it is a very powerful story um, and hopefully one that others listening can either be inspired by or connect with or be motivated by just the way that you have really found your true calling, the passion that drives you to do this work at Our Turn. And I'm excited for you to dive a little bit deeper into what that work is and how your own story resonates with the practice that you have on a daily basis. All right, Tafshir, I'm going to turn it over to you. How about you? How did you become the personal and professional version of yourself? Oh, well, let's see. Let's start from the beginning. <laughs> so for me, really, this personal and professional journey started as a teenager. It started as a pregnant teenager, actually, who was in a high school that was high performing. I had the great success uh, of being part of a vocational technical high school that was really working towards making sure that uh, high school students in underserved communities received uh, education, we received CTE. So I actually got into a computer technology program at the time and I'm about to date myself. Uh, we were learning how to program COBOL and, and C and C plus. That was groundbreaking things back then in the eighties y'all. You know, it was, it was a very high performing school. And, you know, as, as a pregnant teenager, they did not subscribe to supports that, you know, pregnant teenagers needed at the time. So their suggestion to my mother at the time was to send me to a low performing school where other pregnant teenagers actually went to. Mm -hmm. So my mother being who she was, um, an advocate, uh, you know, a, a mom who didn't take no for an answer. She advocated for me. She advocated for me to stay in the school. She advocated for me to go on class trips, to be part of, of my class. You know, and I graduated with my class, with my one-year-old son in the audience waving at me. So I think for me, it started with just that moment where I saw my mother advocate for me, right? And in a space where she wanted to make sure that I received the best education possible by staying in that school. 
So, you know, for me, once I had my son and my subsequent other children, it was it was natural for me to advocate for my children. Right. I started to learn more about the educational system. Thankfully, here in New Jersey, we have lots of different options that I actually use for my children. You know, my children have gone to traditional um, schools, public or traditional public charter, magnet schools, private schools. So thankfully, I had those options for my kids. But I think for me, it, it really started from a space of knowing how to advocate by, by watching my mother and seeing her advocate for me. So advocating for my children came natural. But what I started to see in communities was in black and brown communities, specifically the marginalized community you know, that I live in, was that other parents did not have this skill set. Other parents did not know how to effectively advocate for their children. There were lots of things that were happening in our communities, lots of things happening to children in education. So. I wanted to be able to use what what I had learned from my mother, be use this in, you know use this innate skill to be able to show other parents how to do this, um, and it really snowballed into you know me being the the busybody mom at the school uh, with the big mouth showing up, everybody knowing me, you know joining into the PTAs and being like the um, Girl Scout mom, you know, and just really showing other parents where their voices were important as as an important stakeholder in education. And really where their voices are going to make the difference when it comes to decisions that are being made for their children. So I think joining the National Parents Union was just a natural progression, <laughs> you know, from where I started being being local, uh, working on statewide education issues, working within my local charter district to, to kind of grow that network and, and help more families to have options. So it just kind of was was natural for me to now move to this national level where we can make change and help other parents make change and really help other parents see where their voices are important in education. I think the best thing we do at the National Parents Union, we get emails and calls from parents across the country. And the best thing we do is we help parents to see that they're not alone, right? They're not alone in this fight. They're not the only ones fighting for equity. They're not the only ones fighting for their voices to be in conversation. So, you know, I, I, it's, it's just a, an honor to be a part of the Parents Union, National Parents Union, for me to, to work with so many parents across the country, to get to meet so many parents, to build these relationships and truly be, you know, an advocate for, for parents as well as, as children and to make sure that parents' voices are in every conversation about education. So often when I talk to leaders, they hear stories of folks who inspired them. And I can hear how your mother has inspired you and how you've taken her inspiration and really formed a whole uh, path for yourself and for many other parents to know what advocacy means, know what advocacy looks like, and really be the best they can on behalf of their own children so they can achieve the educational opportunity that they deserve. So I really appreciate you sharing that story, Tafshir. All right, Evan, again, certainly not last but not least, tell us how you became the personal and professional version of yourself, please. Well, I've known Mohan and Tafshir for a while, but it's awesome to hear both of their stories in a little more depth. So, so thank you for bringing us together and letting us start there. I think, you know, we're all organizers at our core. And so hearing stories is, is a lot of what, what motivates me in the work. When I think about my trajectory, it's, it's somewhat different. I grew up with a lot of privilege. My mother was a teacher. My dad was an, a, an attorney. Both of them had grown up in the Central Valley in California. My dad on a small cattle ranch uh, where, where my family had homesteaded in the, the turn of the 1900s. And my mom's family uh, came to California during the Dust Bowl. So they were they they sort of made this big economic transition for our family. And as a result, I got to go to a small private school all the way from pre-K through 12th grade. And probably never would have become interested or focused on or knowledgeable about our public education system, except the city I lived in, Pasadena, California, was the first city 
outside of the South to mandatorily desegregate with busing. And as a result of that, there was huge white flight out of our public school system, a thriving private school sector that started. And my best friend ended up moving in with my family. His family fell in pretty hard times. So he came and lived with us for high school, most of high school. And my parents couldn't get Kofi into school with me. And so he went six blocks away to a failing public high school, the school I would have been zoned for. And we had this super tight knit group of friends across two just like radically different institutions. And I think that's where it was so clear to me that, that, um, you know, talent is equally distributed, but opportunity is not. And what surprised me most, I think, and sent me on this journey was seeing just how all the adults in our lives treated us, what their expectations for us were based on the color of our skin, the school we went to, our parents' jobs, my pa- my friend's parents that would ask us very different questions. One would ask me where I was thinking about going to college. The other one would say, you know, are you going to graduate? Or those types of different questions that were just like persistent in our experiences. And so I think that set me on a journey when I came East for college of trying to understand this issue that I really hadn't experienced personally. Started working, organizing PTAs in New Haven, Connecticut, and saw the real important voice that parents need to have and how often our school buildings are closed off to parents. Um, It was a big fight just to be able to get the PTA president to be able to have a key to the school building, these public buildings, so that they could meet after hours in the school. And then I became a teacher and when in the classroom, I realized, wow, like I thought organizing was the place to be radical and drive radical change. But I actually think the classroom might be the only other place left in this country where you can be truly radical, where you can shape the minds and futures of our next generation. And I was so inspired by the teachers around me, given their dedication, their commitment, But I was also shocked at how sort of voiceless they felt in the system, somewhat similar to what Tashir described there. They were isolated in their classrooms. They didn't know what other teachers thought. And yet they had this hugely powerful entity, their unions advocating for them. But they were pretty disengaged from the union. I ran for the chapter chair in my building. I got really involved with the UFT in New York. And I found that only about 17% of teachers voted in their union elections. And most of the votes in the New York union came from retirees. And so what set me on this question of how do we get these passionate, caring educators to see the power of their voice and be more than just advocates and radical for their students in the classroom, but also outside of the classroom, in their unions, in their state capitals. That's sort of how eFree started to bring educators together, to push their unions to be more representative of them, and to push their legislators to really understand the needs of those that are most proximate to our students. And so that's what set me on this journey, being inspired both by my friends who accomplished amazing things in their life without the the privilege and opportunities that I had, my colleagues in the classroom, many of whom are still there, who I think are doing radical work on behalf of kids, and the need to see organizing at scale to drive real change. I'll just echo what you said, though, Evan. I really appreciate how storytelling will shape this conversation, both because each of you has been vulnerable in sharing your upbringing and your experiences with education and what that led you, how that led you to this work, but also because people connect to stories. And as you mentioned, I'm in organizing and advocacy work, stories really matter. And so thank you for setting and charting the path of this conversation by sharing your stories. I'm going to ask for one more story before we, we hop into the meat of the advocacy work. How do y'all know each other? So you, you are in this organizing space, but how, how do you, Tafshir, no Mohan, no Evan. Tafshir, will you start us off? Yes. Uh, I think we all know each other from our awesome club <laughs> of, of places and spaces where we, we truly come together to talk about ways that we can help transform education. 
and ways that we can work together as stakeholders, right? We're always trying to figure out how these three stakeholders can work together to make sure that children are successful. So I think we all have this, this drive to show up in these places and spaces where we can work together to, to think, think those deep thoughts about how we do that, but also learn together um, and connect together as people. Can I quickly add something? So Evan, I don't know if you remember this. Uh -oh. I was maybe, that's a positive story. This is a positive story, I promise. <laughs> I was maybe two months into my role at Our Turn and kind of stepping back into the realm of education policy and advocacy is where I started my nonprofit career. Then I worked in a lot of cause areas in between. And I went to a conference in Austin and I didn't know very many people who were in this arena and in this space. I was assuming everybody was kind of like-minded. I didn't have any other team members with me. So I'm just trying to figure out like what room am I supposed to be in, in this conference? Like who are the people I should be talking to? Who are the potential allies? One of the few people who just saw me and reached out was Evan. Uh, and it was, I think it was like after one of the breakout sessions and Evan reached out and, and introduced himself and said, Hey, you know, heard that you're, uh, you know, you're leading this organization now and, you know, would love to talk and, and share some ideas and get acquainted. Um, and that, that mattered a lot. Uh, you know, I, I think for, for leaders of color, so often we step into spaces and we're immediately identifying all the things that are different about us and all the ways that we're going to be separate from everyone. And for someone to reach out and to be an active ally, uh, that, again, that was very meaningful. Uh, and, and so I think that was kind of like the start of my relationship with Evan and, and something that, again, I'm just very grateful for. Well, I, I do remember that conference, um, and it's, uh, it's great to hear that that was meaningful for you. I think the, the reason we all know each other is like, you know, our organizations are seeking to bring together parents, students, and teachers. And if you could actually build that trifecta, it's unstoppable, right? That, the, this whole conversation, all of our work is about setting kids up for success. And those that have just gotten out of our school system are best positioned to talk about both what worked and what didn't and what they need. And their parents are obviously their first and best and greatest teacher and advocate. And so I know that the most trusted voice to parents is the teacher too. And so how do we make sure that that partnership exists? And so if the three of us can work together, hopefully that sends a a signal to what we believe is necessary for change. So I, I guess what I'm saying is it was all self-interest for me. I was just trying no, just trying to get Mohan to like me and, and so we can work together. No, I'm kidding. But I, I think that, that 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 trifecta is unstoppable when it comes together. And it's why I'm just in awe of the work of our turn and uh, the National Parents Union and both of their organizations, I think, have done hugely impactful work. And so it's just a pleasure to, to get to know them. Also in awe of you, Evan, and uh, the work that you've done. I think it also for parents and teachers breaks down that and dispels that myth that parents and teachers don't want to work together, right? Like there, there's a myth out there that parents are against teachers. Parents and teachers are each other's best allies, right? We're working together for our children. So I think having us all come together and come together in spaces where we can all advocate together and use our stakeholder voices um, really makes a difference in, in showing the communities that like we are truly here together. We are truly in this fight together for children. So let, let me pause this for a second. I, I often I operate under the assumption that all the listeners that are tuning in know what this work is, right? Like whether it be something in ed tech or something school based, some, now we're talking about advocacy work, 
Let's just have a literacy moment here for folks that are tuning in that are, you know, I know people organize, but I don't really know what that means. How would you define advocacy work and what you do? What What is it at its base and its core? Well, for me, the, you know, the definition of advocacy is speaking out against, uh, against or for a cause, right, or a, a problem. So for me, the advocacy that I do is really one that, that speaks to um, parents as a specific subset as stakeholders, right? And where they are, their voices need to be in decisions being made about their children, um, whether it be on the local level with parents who are part of the PTA, right? PTAs that are effective, ones that are actually um, in the conversation, co-creating with, with schools about like what that parent engagement agenda looks like for the year, parents in, in state level conversations, talking with state boards of education, um, in conversations about things like curriculum and, and safety, right? Like really making sure that their voices are part of those conversations to, to really make sure that they're, they have our perspective when it comes to how we feel about things that are happening with our children. So for me, it's really the, the parent stakeholder um, specifically and where our voices are in education and how we're speaking out and how we are voicing our opinions and where we have these seats at the table to, to be able to, to share what it is that, that we know. I have this question because I'm a teacher in my core about how you measure the impact of advocacy work. So obviously this is jumping ahead a little bit, but as we think about advocacy work, I know that it's more and, and the listeners probably know that it's more than just gathering, of course. So let's talk about goal setting, impact measuring, how our turn and E4E and the National Parents Union, they're well recognized for the impact that they have. But how do you, what does that mean uh, on a molecular level? Mohan, will you start us off? Sure, happy to. I'd start with five words that lead the Our Turn Student Agenda, uh, which is a student designed framework for reimagining education with an equity lens. Those five words are nothing about us without us. So young people in the education system, particularly young people from underrepresented communities for too long have had to shoulder the burden of inequitable and broken education policies. So imagine being a young person of color in school and you show up every day with a fear that saying the wrong thing, being affiliated with the the wrong situation could get you suspended. Not just a slap on the wrist, it could get you suspended. Uh, Imagine you don't see a single teacher who looks like you, who understands your cultural context and background for your entire K to 12 experience. Uh, Or you have aspirations for yourself, but you don't have AP classes in your school. You have a college counselor who tells you that maybe college isn't for you. Maybe you should go on a vocational path. I mean, this is the day-to-day reality of young people in the education system. Now you've got folks who are out there who are trying to design quote unquote solutions for what we're talking about. But if they don't have proximity to what's actually happening in schools, those, again, quote unquote, solutions will always be broken. They will never be sufficient. You know, you look at a situation right now when you think about the college to career pathways pipeline where young people right now, they're dealing with they're dealing with chat GPT. They're dealing with Web3. They're they're thinking about entrepreneurialism. But you've got all the adults who are still fixated on it's either a four year college or bust, which, by the way, will literally go bust on your bank account. So there's the massive just gap and chasm that we need to find a way to bridge. So when you think about impact, oftentimes you look at a scenario like that, and we are forced to think about just the outcomes. 
What are the policies that might emerge? And, and if that's all you think about, then all you also have to think about are the few people who might be in the room to make a decision. So our view, our challenge to everybody is actually to rethink the calculus. And when you consider impact, you've got to think about the input side too. Because if you're not thinking about the input side, the outputs and the outcomes are always going to be broken. So we're thinking about how many young people are being engaged across the country as decision makers. How many young people are on school boards? How many young people are trained to be effective organizers and advocates? Who are the allies that are showing up with young people? And can we be able to scale that? So superintendents, teachers, district leaders, philanthropists, like we actually measure that. We track that. Like who is actually in league with young people and being allies to then start to carry out the process and the journey of the work that will lead us to a more effective and more trustworthy space than literally where we've been in for decades like just decades since the inception of the education system. So we're trying to essentially like rewire that entire thinking, that entire calculus. And so the policies as outcomes still matter, but we also need to measure how are we changing power dynamics? How are we changing decision-making spaces, relationships, culture, some of those fundamentals when it comes to systems change? Those are places where I think in some cases we've we've defined what those metrics can be and others we're, we're learning. We're learning, we're trying to figure it out and actually you know, trying to partner with more folks to figure out what can be that new calculus that we could all rally behind. The call yeah. out there for input versus input as part of impact is a huge one. Evan, I'll let you jump in. Go ahead. No, I, I 100% agree with Mohan uh, and the way he described it. We think about it as inputs, outputs, and outcomes, and what are the right measures across all of those. But maybe I can, like a small story that can paint a micro example of what Mohan just described. When I was in my third year of teaching, I had an amazing student, Saul, who, uh, came into my classroom years behind in his math. And every year he'd had to go to summer school and get pushed through the system. And when I was sitting down with him and his mother at the beginning of the year, I asked him what his goals are, what he wanted to accomplish. And he said, I want to go back to the DR this summer, which means I can't go to summer school again. My family goes back and I have to stay here and do summer school. And I don't get to go back with my brothers. And so I made him a promise. All right. If you come to my after school program, if you come to my Saturday school program, like we're going to get you to pass this test. You're not going to have to go to summer school. Um, came pretty clear that I, he needed some extra time. He had some other uh, needs. So we got him a 504. He had extra time on the test. He worked his tail off. He passed the test that year. He ran around the whole school telling everybody that he passed the test. His mom made empanadas for me and for everybody else. It was like a huge celebration. It was incredible. And he went back to the DR, but shortly into my fourth year of teaching, he came back to my classroom and his face was streaked with tears because he said, I'm failing again. I'm failing again. They won't let me have extra time. And he'd moved on to the middle school around the corner. So I said, no problem. I still have your form. At that point, we still put everybody's forms in these like big metal boxes and like shipped them back to the district. And so I took his form down to the middle school the next day and was waiting for the principal told the secretary in the building what I was there for. The principal came out after like an hour and just said like, look, he's in middle school now. I can't do anything. Not all the other kids can wait. Like, and I was like, this is legal, right? You need to give him extra time. Like he can do this. Totally got blown off. So I was back at my school the next day and my mentor teacher, Jen Lee came in to talk to me and she was like, what's wrong? I can tell you're upset. And I told her this story and she said to me, what are you going to do about it? And I was like, I tried, like, I'm not gonna do anything. <laughs> like, principal's crazy. And she was like, well, let's get Saul's third grade teacher and fourth grade teacher and his resource teacher um, and the para, and all of us will go over there. And so two days later, 12 of us walked over to that middle school 
And the principal was an entirely different person. She was like, I didn't understand what you needed. Of course, we can accommodate Saul's needs. Those are his legal rights. Like, I, why didn't you just like say that to me last time? We immediately got into the room and we left. And I was like, you know, on cloud nine, I couldn't believe that like things had changed. But what was different were all the inputs, right? There was more of us that walked over together. The outputs, we showed up with like a clear goal and clear ask and got the meeting right away. And the outcome was the change that we wanted to see. And so when I think of advocacy, I think of that at a macro scale. I mean, the micro stories too, but advocacy is building the necessary power, the number of people that can't be ignored, can't be denied, can't be stopped, getting into the room that Mohan described. That's the output. We got these, these meetings in place. And the outcome is that then some change happens that brings more justice to our world and to our students and to our families. And so to me, that's what advocacy is um, in a nutshell. That is a powerful story. Really. For me, it's the same, you know, it's both of what Evan and Mohan talked about, you know, those inputs, those outcomes. And the story, thinking about the story that Evan just described, like where do parents also fit in that a similar story, right? Having to go to IEP meetings, not having the information, not knowing your rights as a parent, not knowing who's supposed to be there, not knowing what your, your child can actually, what the, what the accommodations look like, right? Uh, having more parents in on school boards, having more parents on committees, right? Like making sure that their voices are there, you know, for us thinking about the ultimate change of policy, right? Like how do we change these policies for students for their outcomes, but how do we change even where parent voices fit into the the inputs, you know, thinking about how, you know, at the bare minimum, just welcome parents into the building, right? Like that is a struggle across the country, really making sure that parents can just come into the door, right? And feel comfortable because we we know in, in our marginalized communities that, you know, it's it's not always what people think about parents. You know, all the time I get questions. The number one question I get from folks is like, how do you get parents to come into schools? And I always say, welcome them in. That's first, like actually make them feel welcome to come into the school building. And then when they're there, listen to them, listen to what they, they the needs that they, they have for their kids, help them to co-create, you know, some of the policies and, and some of the things that you're, you're making for parents, but truly create an opportunity for parents to, to feel like they are part of their children's education. We have so many parents who, have trauma themselves from some of these schools, right? Like they walk, they walk into these buildings with trauma. They've been traumatized by some of the teachers, some of the principals, some of the staff. So even working with parents to get them past that trauma, being able to use their voice in these spaces, right? And knowing where, how powerful their voices are. So for us, again, the impact is policies that are made, spaces where we see parents moving into positions of power. But a lot of times it's just working with a group of parents who feel comfortable coming into the building and using their voices in these spaces and fighting for what their kids need and even learning about the education system. You know, we have some parents right now who are, who we so proud are taking the, the Georgetown education finance course, right? They're going to come out and be beasts, right? Like they're going to be beasts at these school board meetings when you're talking about the budget, right? They're going to be dissecting this budget so hard that the school boards are not going to know what hit them. But like, this is, this is where we measure our impact. The number of, of families across the country that are actually moving in spaces where they are learning about the educational system, they are educating themselves, they are learning their rights as parents, and they're really exercising that power to make sure that their, their students are, are successful. You've done a really authentic job, folks, of tying together the intersectionality of this work. And I want to just dive in there for a little bit and talk about 
what success looks like. Where has there been success at the crossover and intersection of family, student, and teacher advocacy? I think in almost every situation where you you think about policies being passed, you know, statewide level, usually usually our three stakeholder voices are at the table, right? They're not elevated a lot. Um, you know, a lot of times students are there, parents are there, their voices aren't really elevated into the conversation. But I think for me, the the one place that I can think about is the the charter movement, right? Like for for charter schools, thinking about the the teachers who work in these spaces, you know, thinking about the the innovation that that they can have in some of these schools. And again, I'm not saying all charters are good because some of them are not so great. But thinking about some of the innovation as opposed to the traditional public schools that that teachers can have, thinking about as a parent that option, right? If you live in a community where your your schools there are failing your children, having an option where it's it's someplace that could be a better educational option, and then as a parent. You know, just having that choice, having that actual choice of of having that. And as a student, like being in an environment where you feel welcomed, where you feel like you, you're you getting what you need educationally, like there, there's a, a culture match there. So that was one of the places I could think about, you know, for as long as the charter movement has been around and it, it still has some things we all need to fix together. But for as long as it's been around, I think these three stakeholders together have been able to, to really move that, that movement forward. I have a success story in the works around the fight for accurate history and culturally inclusive pedagogy in schools, because there is absolutely shared interest between young people across the country, parents, teachers, you know, looking at, uh, you know, even Evan's organization, you know, they did a campaign around this, you know, in speaking to that need to, to be honest, to be truthful in schools. Uh, you know, you've seen parents who are fighting back against the the endless politics and vitriol and division that so many folks are bringing into the educational system um, and the trust that both parents have in students and in teachers. And then you have students who have been more and more out there uh, on the forefront stating that, hey, you can you can trust us with honesty. You can trust us to be empathetic, to be independent learners and thinkers, and we will all be better for it. And you have these groups who are showing up in different ways to be breakthrough messengers for really like where our minds need to be when it comes to curriculum and pedagogy, as opposed to, again, the relentless attacks and the, and the politics that have been happening. Um, and I say it's I just say it's a work in progress because I think we've identified the unity in purpose and in messaging. Uh, and I think there are a number of factors that will be necessary for us to see it all through for us to build that ground force that Evan was talking about before, for us to be able to show up in more of those decision-making spaces that Tefshir is talking about, uh, and for these three groups to then also define what are the outcomes that they want to see, and then to have that at the top of the radar. And I'm optimistic that in the coming months, in the coming years, we will see more of those outcomes that are indeed aligned with what students and parents and teachers are looking for when it comes to building a curriculum that is inclusive, that is honest, that is culturally responsive. I agree with everything that's been said. I don't have much to add. I think the issue of honest, culturally relevant curriculum is a core through line for all of our organizations. But maybe the one thing that could that could build on this is I think there's a lot of people and a lot of organizations that seek to divide. To Tash to your point earlier, she said lots of people think teachers and parents are opposed and fighting each other. I don't think that's true. I also think the vast majority of teachers are in this work for the for the kids in their classroom and want to do everything they can to serve them. 
And I think there's lots of people that want to divide and pit these three audiences against each other. Because when divided, we are far less powerful. We are far less influential. And I think it's on all of us to think about what are not just the issues, but how do we come back to the like clear shared interests um, of why we're in this field and try to build a virtuous flywheel around that? Because like to me, improving the conditions of the profession will bring better people into the workforce, will drive better outcomes for kids, will you know, bring more parents back into school buildings, Well, then, you know, create more funding into the system because more people have a confidence in our public schools to reinvest in teachers. Like when we are on the same team, we can actually fight towards a shared goal. And I think our goals are really aligned. It is just that there's a lot of voices out there that realize that and try to pit parents and teachers against each other or try to create the space to make it seem like teachers are not in it for their kids. And of course, there is exceptions to every one of these rules. But I think in general, the vast majority of people in the system have a shared goal. And it's how do we come back to those core principles and values to drive our policy? And I think that's a that's the big challenge that we all grapple with is, you know, talking about the issues, but also grounding it in our shared values day in and day out. You know, it's interesting when I met with Mohan prior to this panel, Mohan like really sparked something for me, which was he wanted this conversation to be synergistic versus generative. And you, again, authentically have kind of had these calls to action. Each of you has had somewhat of your own call to action that like interrelates with the other. And it it really makes me, like Mohan said, feel very optimistic about the work that's happening independently and the way that, as Evan said, a virtuous flywheel of interaction with the three constituents and how they interact. And I'm wondering, you know, one of the other challenges that Mohan posed me with that I didn't put in our question guide, so this is very much coming off the cuff, but um, was about what message you would want to send to philanthropists who are the ones that are financially supporting this work about the intera- kind of interlocking nature of these different groups and how what message you would or call to action you would have for them. How long do we have? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we could just make this part two of the episode. This could be a trilogy, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the the real odyssey, Mohan, to use your word from earlier. No, I'll I'll start on this one. Like I I think we have gone through. I, I've been in the advocacy space for 13 years, leading E Free since I launched it in my classroom, and we've gone through waves of philanthropy being committed to organizing, and what I worry about is like, this is long-term generational change that we are all talking about. We all want to have urgency. We all have urgency. We all want to have wins now, and we are all working towards them and we're all getting them. But I think investing in, in community building and organizing and power building is not easily defined into one or two year grant cycles that are defined just by the outcomes. And so this goes back to Mohan's point that the inputs and the outputs matter. How are we building power how are we preparing for fights that we don't even know are here yet? How are we using the current fights to build the skill and agency of our teams and of our members and of our constituencies? So I think philanthropy needs to continue to think about longer term grants, not that we don't need to show progress along the way, less defined outcomes, so less specific policy issues so that we can actually build the policy agenda from our constituencies, from our memberships. And it's not being defined by philanthropists, but defined by the communities who are going to be driving for change. So that's my push that I always say, like, what are, you know, let me show you we're building power, but don't tell me what it needs to be around. Invest in the long-term game. 
and don't, you know, every five years come with a new strategic plan or a new issue or a new direction, because if you really want to build power, it takes a long time. And many of the organizations that often are challenging our work have that longer term investment um, and are building up through school boards or other entities over the long haul. So long term, less focused just on specific issues. So it's a lot project based, but allows us to really invest in people over years and years to ensure that we're in a place to win on the big issues when they come. I absolutely second everything that Evan shared there. And what I'll add is oftentimes I'm asked, just given my role uh, that I have within our turn, and even just in this space of education, justice, and advocacy, uh, what is it that keeps me up at night? And it's not an issue. Uh, it's not a strategy. It is the fact that I go to bed every night knowing that there are about 40 people, full-time and part-time, majority students, majority from underserved, marginalized communities who are relying on me to ensure the sustainability and resiliency of our organization for the long term. So that is a matter of them being able to show up to work as their full selves, to be financially secure, for their mental health to be in a solid place so that we can do all the work that we've been talking about. And that is happening at a time when the pandemic's not gone, the effects are still here. Political turmoil is a complete mess right now. You have a planet in peril. So you have all these situations that are playing out right now, all these pressures on people to be able to just do their job. Uh, you know, I had a team member who asked me recently, hey, like, if you weren't managing so many interim responsibilities right now, like, what are the things that you feel like you, you would be doing? And I actually couldn't even answer the question because I've been so stuck in just the day-to-day -day grind for so long that it's tough sometimes for me to imagine, oh, what could I be doing if, if not just myself, but if our whole team, if we had the resources, the, the people, the capabilities, the space uh, to, to really like lean into ourselves and into each other in this work and to, to fill up our cups. You know, I, I look forward to getting to that day when I can do that type of imagining and building within my team and, and across the country. And so I think that's something that is fundamental to us doing any of this work is it's taking care of the folks it's within the work, it's taking care of the institution so that we could be resilient, so that we don't have to punch above our weight class forever. That used to be a badge of honor, but not anymore. Like we just got to up our weight class. And I think that's certainly the case for our organization, but I, I, I think that's, I feel like it's safe to say that's the case for, you know, for, for like the teaching groups that are out there, the parent groups that are out there. We, we just got to be able to up our weight class. I agree with both Evan and Moan. <laughs> Period. <laughs> like that's it for me. I think what I it definitely longer term grants. You know, we we fight with having these these one one year, two year, three year grants, and it's like it takes a, the first year to really just kind of build that momentum to get some of these things passed. Um, specifically, when it comes to parent groups, a lot of our grants are measured on you know bodies, right? Like a hundred, you brought you brought a hundred parents to this event, ten parents to that event, right? It's like we need longer time to qualitatively work with these families to get them to a point where they are in these positions of power, right? Like we can't have one conversation with them. You know, they show up for an event and like, yes, we're all in, we're going to run for school board, right? Like, so really having that, that time to build these relationships and work with parents to give them information, to, to help them activate themselves um, as effective advocates in their community is where we need the money. And then also for us, you know, we, we, 
we want to pay parents, right? And when we say that to people, they think that we're paying people to do a thing that is outside of their their best interest. Right? Like we're paying them to say the things that they, they were going to say anyway, right? For their kids. They're going to say these things for their kids. But parents have to take their time out sometime, right? They have... They have competing interests and things that they have to do. So we are always trying to figure out how do we build in paying parents for their time that they're spending. And a lot of times we do get pushback for that, where it's like, oh, you're just paying parents and you're putting words in their mouth, which is the farthest thing from the truth. But for, you know, for the for the funders, think about when we put that in there, right, X amount of dollars for paying parents is truly for the benefit of the parents, right? Like it's, it's for their time um, and, and their efforts. And they, they, we truly believe that parents should be paid for that. Well, Mohan, thank you for prompting that question. I'm really glad I asked it. I think it definitely gives perspective to folks who don't understand the organizing space well, some of the challenges that the work that you come across doing the work. For my final question, I I always ask guests, what advice would you give a teacher starting their career? Or I I pivot it if it's a different audience. So for you, I'm going to pivot that question. Uh, What advice would you give an organizer starting their career? I'll start backwards order because I started with Mohan first. For a lot of these questions, I'll start with Evan. I think I would say three things. Like, you know, the first, the key to organizing is really active listening. So learn how to actively listen. Learn how to listen, not just for the words that people are saying, but the messages that are underneath them. Learn how to listen based on how they are speaking and how they are engaging. Because organizing is about finding the things that they are deeply, deeply passionate about and connecting that to the work that you're doing, because that's what will motivate people. Not just things they care about, but the things that they they feel deeply in their core and in their soul. The second thing is probably like, go find an organization that has some great organizers, because it is a craft that takes time and you need coaching and you need advice and you need to watch how other people operate in spaces. So there's there's amazing organizations. We're, we're, We're talking to several of them right now. And so I think thinking about the organization where you can go and seek mentorship you know, the, the key to organizing is moving yourself to a place to realize that it's not about you at all. And that you are, your goal is to delegate all the power that you have to others. And that's how you build their skill and capability to drive work be long beyond you. So we often talk about organize yourself out of a job. There's a lot of work to do. So you're not going to do that very soon. So it's going to take you decades and decades to do that. But I do think, you know, in most professions and most things, we center ourselves and organizing is about decentering yourself. Um, to provide space and a platform for others and giving them skills. And I think that's a really hard thing to, it's a very easy thing to say and to talk about and a really hard thing to do. And I think it's the thing that most organizers need to want to do going into the work um, and know that's an aspect of it. So those are maybe three things I would say, but I didn't think much about this question. So I'm sure Tafshir Mohan can build on that. I agree with with those three things, especially the part about this is not about us. You know, this is about the, the families we support. This is about the, the children across the country we support. I say that all the time. Did not join the parent union or build this parent union for me. Uh, this is definitely about the parents that we work with across the nation. The advice that was given to me, I've been an, a, an advocate for, I would say, a good 25 years now. But when I, I wanted to, I used to work in corporate America for a long time. But when I wanted to do this job, you know, full time as, as a full time thing, um, the advice was that was given to me was don't do it. <laughs> like that was really the advice. And I was like, no, don't say that. So along with the three points that, that Evan talked about, I always suggest to, to, to advocates and organizers, and especially the folks on my team, shout out to the OP team, we just talked about this yesterday, is radical rest. Because this work does not turn off. It is not work that stops at five o'clock. 
Like you do not stop thinking about kids and families and, 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 and where they are. You do not stop building relationships at five o'clock. You know, it's, it's constantly, it's around the clock work. And it's because it's truly a part of, of who you are, right? It's not just something that you do, but truly who you are at the core, you are here to support people. You are here to, to talk to people, to give them that advice, to, to offer that coaching, um, but definitely build in some, some radical rest. And I say the word radical intentionally because you, you really have to find places where you can rebuild yourself um, because this work is definitely 24 hours a day, truly. You know, there are elements of what Evan and Tafshira said that I'm taking notes for myself to just apply my own practice. Uh, so I, I appreciate y'all and your wisdom. So I'm a big comic book and movie guy. And in V for Vendetta, there's a line towards the end where V says, a revolution without dancing is a revolution not worth having. So I started my career first in the corporate side and the social impact side, very much focused on the outcomes. We are going to end generational poverty. We are going to end social injustice. Well, now that I've taken many losses and had some wins, fortunately along the way, I just have so much more appreciation for the journey and the little points in the journey that bring laughs and opportunities to dance and to sing and to celebrate and to, to cherish and elevate folks' stories. And sometimes even as you're dealing with a loss, um, this is a journey, as Evan said, you know, where this is work that can take decades. You know, folks have been fighting this good fight for a long time. All we have is the next step we can take. You know, all we have is today. And then we wake up and then we have the next day. And so you want to try and find the highlights along the way. And again, this is also something that I'm still trying to push myself to do as much as I can. And I'm very privileged to be in allyship with incredible leaders across the country, from young people to Tafshir, Evan, you know, their partners in the fight uh, who bring me so much of that joy day in, day out. Ooh, I don't know that this could end any better than it has right now with all of you sharing such profound wisdom and insight and advice. First of all, I want to thank you for letting me have, I lied to you and said this would not take a full hour, um, but I couldn't, this, this just was such rich conversation that I, I, you know, took the full hour. I hope our listeners appreciated hearing your stories and you sharing the advice you shared and your insights as much as I have. Thank you to each of you for joining today on today's episode of Learning Can't Wait. Thanks thank for bringing us together. Yeah, of course. I can't wait to do it again because this is just the beginning. I'm really excited to be able to highlight your work and spotlight and really uplift the stories that you've told and the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good one, everybody. Pleasure, Stay y'all. cool. Talk to y'all soon. Thanks for listening to the Learning Can't Wait podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and share this episode. Be the first to know when we have a new episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or have a suggestion for an episode, email us at podcast at fullmindlearning.com.